Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Let's turn in the book of Ivrim Hebrews. We're going to look at chapter 10, um, part 2 this week, because last week I only think I got into about 8, maybe 9 verses. Um, so this week I want to spend some time actually getting into the text. A couple of announcements to make before we do do that. Many people have been contacting us, and you can contact us at info at but asking us about how to find fellowship. So up on the website, we do have a fellowship finder. So please, if you're looking for fellowship in your area, then please enter into, your, um, into the fellowship finder your information, and you may actually find somebody in the area that you live, the state, county, or even in the same hamlet or village. So please take advantage of that. We do now to help those in Russia so that we do not have another Bolshevik revolution. We do have the Russian translation of some of the teachings. Is that correct? So I want to have a special thank you to Dina and Sylvia for putting that together. But that is available online, a teaching in Russian. So that's pretty phenomenal, isn't it? My goodness. Try reading that if you want to stay up late at night. And then finally, Passover, April 3rd. On Sunday, April 3rd, and the questions abound. How did you come up with that date? Well, we're doing the solar calendar, so we are taking the start of the year as the first day after the equinox and counting from that point on. But if you would like to come out to the fellowship, Torah to the Tribes, we do have a hotel. I don't believe it's a five-star But it is right next door. It's a five-star walk, so you can just come and stay and take part in Passover, the celebration with us here. If you would like to travel and come, then please RSVP info at TorahToTheTribes.com. I think that's it, right? Okay, let's jump right into the text. We are looking at Ivrim, the book of Hebrews, and we're going to jump in right around the 10th or 11th verse. And we're going to look at sanctification and justification. And then we'll go on further down and we will look as we come into the 19th verse and forward. We'll be looking at the importance of us holding fast to our confession of faith. I mean, we have to hold fast to that which is in us. And many of us over the years, we've witnessed people that have not held fast. My wife always prays to me, to, for me, to, to finish well. And that should be our prayer for one another, to finish well. And some of us in here this week have lost loved ones. And truly, that's the prayer, isn't it? It's the prayer that we would finish well, that we would have a good, a good life. But more importantly, that, that the day of our death, or transfiguration preferably, that it would be a good life that we have lived. So hold fast your confession of faith. And then finally, as we come into the latter verses of chapter 10, we will look and see how the just live. The just live by faith. So we'll start off in verse 10. By that desire, we are now kadosh. We are now holy through the offering of the body of 
Yahusha HaMashiach once and for all. You see, what was once unattainable through the older order, the author is now saying to the audience, it's now attainable to you. What you could never obtain before, before with the older order, it's now right at your fingertips. You can obtain it once and for all through the new order. It's the atonement the audience is trying to explain. It's the atonement at one moment as opposed to in the Torah, there was the keporah. And I think one of the biggest disservices that the modern translators have done for us is in Leviticus chapter 16, translating that as the day of atonement. Because it truly is not the day of atonement. Because atonement means at one moment. Yom Kippur never made you at one with the Creator. It was a temporary conditional reprieve. It was a keporim. It was a covering. It was the day of coverings. Yom Ha Keporim is the proper translation. But if you believe that it is an atonement, well, they had their sins atoned in the Old Testament. In the t- no, they never did. They were never made at one with the Creator. They were covered temporarily and conditionally. They had a reprieve for another year. But now the author is saying, atonement in its true linguistic sense, Yahusha made you at one with the creator, perfection, and that is only realized through the incarnation. Because the veil, when his flesh was ripped, you became one with the creator. The veil was ripped, giving you access to the holy place now that Mashiach can go into the Kedosh, Ha Kedoshim. So we must now, in our faith, we've got to learn to appropriate the priesthood and thus participate in its power and awakening that it does bring. We have to appropriate and participate in what he's accomplished. It's not just that he's accomplished it and then we are bystanders. We have to appropriate it and we have to participate in it daily. And that's what the author is thrusting home to his audience. Verse 11. And every Kohen, every priest, stands daily serving and offering the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. They could never bring atonement. They could only cover, and they stood because the work was never done. This is what he's communicating. And bear in mind that they could look to the temple system, the Sanhedrin system that was right functioning at the time, and they could see this. And that's why in Maaseh Shlachim, Acts chapter 6, many priests were leaving the Levitical regime, and they were coming across to the Nazarene. We have the contrast. We have the contrast that the Levitical priest remains standing. Their work is never finished. The one is now in contrast to the many. The one is in contrast to the many. Verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, Leolam Vaed, he sat down. 
at the right hand of Yahuwah, waiting from then on until all his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected Leolam Vayed forever and ever them that are being set apart. Them that are being set apart. You see, he's expecting, he's waiting until the fulfillment of Psalm 110 when all of his enemies will be placed under his feet. Yahushua is sitting down waiting in expectation presently until all of his enemies are put under his feet because his work is what? It's finished. It's finished. So we're assured of a permanent maintenance in right relationship with Yahuwah. A permanent perfection is brought to the saints. And the point, the point is driven home by the use of the Greek word, word that you'll see right in the text here in verse 12, telekleon, which means hath perfected, hath perfected, which emphasizes the permanent nature, the permanent nature of Yahushua's sacrifice in contrast to the temporary nature of all of the sacrifices that went previously before him. Now, in contrast, we have to get this point, the work of holiness and sanctification is a continual action. Holiness and sanctification is a continual action of the Ruach HaKodesh upon the life of believers, captured by the use of the present passive participle, and we see this Greek word here, hagazamonius, which means them that are being set apart. It's active. It's a constant thing that we're doing. You can only begin the work of sanctification by yoking yourself with the gift, which is the Ruach HaKodesh, and keeping the commandments. Listen, you cannot, you cannot be sanctified by the blood of Christ in a one-time altar call or through a one-time salvation experience. You see, this is the Christian tragedy. This is the Christian tragedy. And so many are being deceived and ripped off of the true gospel, the true faith. Pastors amalgamate sanctification and justification. Pastors amalgamate justification and sanctification, thereby denying the believer what? The fear of of Yahweh by amalgamating justification and sanctification they deny the believer the fear of Yahweh and the beginning of wisdom is what the beginning of wisdom is the fear of Yahweh it's all wrapped up together you see if you don't understand that the tenant of your salvation is justification which is what? A positional change. It's a positional change that then thrusts you, 
That positional change is supposed to thrust you into a lifelong race of sanctification. And that's what Paul says. Once you become justified, a positional change, that is then supposed to thrust you into the lifelong race of sanctification. It's a race. You never stop running it. You never stop running it. If you are truly justified, you have the positional change. The fruits of justification is that you got thrust by the gift that now resides in you to run the race. You have no option. You have no option because the fruits of justification is that you enter into the race of sanctification. And the Christian tragedy is the amalgamation of sanctification and justification that rips the believer off of the fear of Yahweh and the wisdom of discerning these things. If you don't understand that, you will find yourself a spectator and you will lose both. And that's what happens. You will find yourself a spectator and you will lose both. This is serious and worth time of meditation. Because you could just listen to my words without really having this impact you. But this is huge. And this is what Rav Shaliak Shaul, Rabbi Apostle Paul, is communicating constantly throughout his messages. But if you can do what? If you can what? Change the terms and you can control the language, then you can control the people. And that's what the church has done by amalgamating these two terms. You see, you are perfected by the blood of Christ, which is what? A change of status, which is justification. But you are then commanded to enter the race of sanctification, which is a lifelong race of keeping the commandments to the finish line of resurrection and transfiguration. See, the institutionalized church has changed the scriptural definitions and thus controls the conversation. And that's another gospel. That's another gospel. By changing the scriptural definitions of words, they're able to fleece the sheep at their altars of milk, thus robbing their very souls of salvation. And then you wonder why some don't hold on to the faith. Because they never understood the seriousness of this thing that is a part of our very life. It's deep, isn't it? And it is fearful and wonderful. And it takes wisdom to discern it. And it's all intricately connected, but you must understand the difference between justification, a positional change that then thrusts you into the lifelong race of sanctification, which is a continuous work of keeping the commandments and living a holy, righteous life in a sick and twisted world. Justification declares you good, but it doesn't make you good. Justification declares you good, but it doesn't make you good. It's sanctification that makes you good. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. 
It would have been great if somebody had explained that to me in my first week in the church. It would have saved me a lot of sinning. It's important, though, those struggles that we all have, the backsliding when we were infants, this could have been nipped very, very easily in the bud by somebody sitting down and explaining, hey, you've just come to the faith. You have a positional change. That's justification. But now, you know what you're feeling inside, that conviction? It's because you're now to enter the race. If you leave the race, you'll lose both. You have to continue now in the race of sanctification. So as the Ruach HaKodesh convicts you of what you used to do formerly that you can no longer do, just realize you are in the race and continue and never give up. I would have loved that pep talk when I started 24, when I was 24 years old. And the Cadillac margaritas were beckoning me in the late nights, you know? But seriously... We look in verse 11 through 13, and we'll see six contrasts. Six contrasts, okay? Number one. Number one, the many priests in contrast to the one priest. Number two, they were still standing, which was an incomplete and never-ending work, contrasted with the one who is sitting. And just to show you and to communicate to you how the institutionalized church mixes up the terms, I mean, so you, I mean, you have to understand this comes from, I believe it's the, the worship track is um, from Left Behind Worship. So you know that, you know, they're going to be a little doctrinally off, Left Behind Worship. But uh, there's a song called In Christ Alone. And the lyrics go something like this. Now he stands in victory since cursed has lost its grip on me. No, he doesn't. And you've got millions of Christians singing these songs. And it's changing their mind. And they're speaking it out. So they're communicating that Christ's work is an unfinished work, that he is not in victory. He is still standing because it is an incomplete work. This is absolutely outrageous. He is not standing. He is sitting because it is a complete finished work. And when he does stand, it will become, it will be because he is coming to judge his enemies because they have now been placed under his feet. And this is just typical. This is just one Christian song, but you know it's going to be wrong when the band's like left behind worship, right? (laughs) It's kind of a clue for you. Number three, we're looking at the six contrasts between verse 11 and 13. Number three, they had to sacrifice daily, whereas he sacrificed only once on one day. Number four, They sacrificed many times, and he sacrificed only once. Number five, they offered many sacrifices, and he offered only the one. And number six, they accomplished a temporary covering, whereas he accomplished a permanent, all-encompassing atonement. Very different. 
And then in verse 14, our author, he sums it all up. Yahushua's one offering perfected the saints forever. Even though we're still in the sanctification process, from Yahuwah's viewpoint, we have been perfected forever because we have that positional change. Does that make sense? Now, this shows us the contrast between position and practice because in position, you and I are what? We're perfected. Positionally, I'm perfected. Positionally, you are perfected. But in practice, what? We are still engaged in the battle to overcome sin. We are still engaged in the battle to overcome sin. It's an ongoing work, and that's called practical sanctification. So we have to understand these distinctions. Otherwise, we will tremble, stumble, and tremble all over our feet. (laughs) I'm out of words. But what was a future expectation in the time of the prophet Jeremiah? has become a present reality as a result of the resurrection of the Malkitzedek. Yahushua's Malkitzedek priesthood has inaugurated the era of the new covenant, verse 15. And the Ruach HaKodesh also is a witness for us. So now it's the Ruach HaKodesh speaking here, not the prophet Jeremiah. Even though we're quoting the prophet Jeremiah, it's the Ruach HaKodesh that's speaking here. For after that, he had said before, This is the Brit that I will make with them after those days, says the Master Yahuwah. I will put my Torah in their levot. I will put my law in their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. So this is the implanting of Yahuwah's laws together with the will and power to actually carry it out. That's the difference. Verse 17, and their sins and lawlessness, Torahlessness, will I remember no more. Now, where forgiveness of this, these is, there is no more offering of sin. So Yahushua's single offering has provided permanent forgiveness. Sacrifice for sins is no longer necessary. Just because a permanent atonement is now in place... Yahuwah's standard of holiness in the Torah doesn't all of a sudden become invalid in light of the Malkitzedek, does it? No, he still has a Torah for holiness and righteousness. It is the cultic status of the tabernacle, the priesthood, and the sacrifices that become invalid in light of the Malkitzedek. Not the Torah holiness code that sanctifies the believer through righteously applying a biblical diet, a biblical Sabbath, and the biblical holidays. No. It is the cultic status of tabernacle, priesthood, and sacrifices that becomes invalid. Not the whole law that becomes invalid, how the institutionalized church would interpret this. It's the book of the law that becomes invalid because that is what was regulated by the Levitical priesthood through righteously 
living in Melchizedek, we still apply the holy Torah code to our lives. Verse 19. Having therefore, Israelite brothers, boldness to enter into the Makom Kadosh, the holy place, by the dam of Yahusha, the blood of Yahusha, by a new and living way which he has set apart for us through the veil, that is to say, his very flesh. You see, his body was like a veil. That's the incarnation. We enter the holy place, but we do not enter the holy of holies. And there's another Christian song that would say, you enter into the holy of holies. Do you see how we're starting to see this theme here? That you're not trusting the word of Yahweh, you're trusting the doctrine of men. But if you check the word of Yahweh, you'll see that your songs don't match up. You're going to end up in the Amos 5 judgment. And it's very, very telling. So we see right now that we find ourselves in the holy place, but not in the holy of holies. The veil that ripped was the Hekel curtain or the holy place curtain. And that, of course, gave us access into the holy place. But Yahusha, as our high priest, does his work alone in the Kadosh HaKedoshim, in the Holy of Holies, a place where no believers have ever gone. Because if you and I are able to go into the Holy of Holies, we don't need Yahushua, do we? Because we have now become high priests. But we're not high priests. We are priests under the order of Malkitzedek. We're not kings, and we're not high priests. We are a kingdom of priests under the order of Melchizedek, which allows us to go in and meet our king and high priest in the holy place, petition with him, and then he does his work alone before the mercy seat of the Father as our high priest in the Kadosh HaKedoshim. It's all about position and authority, and he has the position and the authority, and we go to the positional authority over us. But we don't just boldly walk in. We boldly have access to the mediator. And we can boldly walk into the holy place. But we don't just brazenly go forth into the Kadosh HaKedoshim. Does that make sense? These are very important things, just like justification and sanctification. We have to understand our position. Because if we don't understand our position, then we will be walking around in a place that we're not supposed to be, bumbling all over the furniture, and we will end up in judgment, or we will become discouraged when things don't work out the way we think they're supposed to, and we'll leave the race, and we'll lose both justification and sanctification, and become a side-by um, standby at the sidelines, a spectator. And that is not the walk that he's called us to be. Verse 21, and having a Kohen Haggadah, a high priest over the Bet Hamikdash, the temple of Yahuwah, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that has promised. And let us care for one another to stir up Ahava 
love and tov mitzvot, good, holy living. For forsaking the assemblies, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see Yom, the day approaching. So now our author is going to have two bases for exhortation that he's establishing. He's going to have two bases for exhortation that he is now establishing. Number one, free access to Yahuwah. Verse 19, therefore, in light of what has been said previously, the audience has free access to Yahuwah. So now we need to learn, and they needed to learn, how to start using it, right? We need to start to learn how to use this free access. This summarizes all of the previous sections from chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 10, verse 14. You have free access to the mediator. Now you've got to start to learn how to start using it. This was a huge change for them from the old temple system because they never had that before. You've got it now, but you're going to have to start learning how to use it. So he spent 10 chapters building to this very pinnacle because this was it. This was the very thing that was letting them leave Acts chapter 6 and come. I believe it was this communication that he built 10 chapters on. And this is very, this is very much it. When he was teaching this, this may have been at the very time, Acts chapter 6, that those in the priesthood were leaving. Because he's showing the distinction and the difference and the hope that they have. And number two, the second basis for exhortation that he's establishing is the sovereign power of our high priest. And now, because he's established these two bases for exhortation, our author is going to give us five specific, five specific exhortations. Number one, in verse 22, he exhorts us, to draw near, to draw near. That's talking about ritual worship. We're to be driven into a ritual worship, which is a continuous action. And this is twofold. How? With a true heart and with full assurance of faith. It's a mature and vigorous faith. It's ripe where we daily inspect and investigate our heart. How many of us are doing that? Daily investigating and inspecting our heart. And oftentimes at home with our children, we'll say, what is in your heart that you just did that? Because our nature, the actions that we are doing, it all comes from what what is in our heart? That's the motivator. Why did you just do that? What is in your heart? Why did you say that? What is in your heart? The second exhortation is verse 23, is to hope. Let us hold fast the confession, the confession of hope. The third exhortation, verse 24, to love. Let us consider one another. Be considerate of each other. The fourth exhortation is to fellowship on Shabbat, not forsaking are assembling together. And of course, the Greek word there that we all know is episynagoge. 
It's not going to Sunday church. It's episynagogue. Go to the synagogue. And when would they go to synagogue? On Sunday morning. At the sunrise Easter service? No, they would go to the synagogue on Shabbat, episynagogue, so we can exhort one another. But this isn't something in the distant past because the only other time this Greek word episynagogue shows up, fancy that, is in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1 when we're supposed to be episynagogue together as we're gathered up at the last day. So it's a continual thing that we're supposed to be doing. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, apparently we're still supposed to be gathering together in synagogue when Yahushua returns for the final episynagogue, the gathering up of the saints together. Where's your church pre-tribulation rapture? It doesn't fit in with episynagogue, does it? You see, these things, we just have to take the time. And the fifth exhortation is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us care for one another to stir up ahava and tov mitzvot. Love and commandment keeping, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another daily and so much more as you see the day Fast approaching. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully, this is talking about abandoning one's confession of faith and thus transgressing the Torah vertically. This is talking about One's confession of faith. Don't abandon your confession of faith. Because if you do, you will be transgressing the Torah vertically. We're not talking about horizontal transgression, man between man. Because it tells us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 18, that if we think that we have no sin, then we are what? Deceiving ourselves. So this is talking, don't abandon your confession and faith, because if you do, you're making a vertical transgression of the Torah. But don't deceive yourself to think that you're not going to sin horizontally between man and man. That is a continual work of sanctification. You'll do it less and less the more you're in the race. After that, we receive the knowledge of the truth. Once we come to Yahushua in the faith, that's what it's talking about, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Meaning Yahushua, he's not going to climb back up on the tree again for you and for I. Verse 27. But there is a certain fearful anticipation of judgment and of fire, which shall devour his enemies. Anyone that rejects Moshe's Torah, dies without mercy under two or three witnesses. You have to be careful of the NIV and the New American Standard because it would be so convenient if we could make this in the distance past. It's got nothing to do with you. So we can mistranslate this and you can just write all of this off. Oh, well, that's back in the past. But we've got a problem because if we actually start to look into the Septuagint, if you start to look into the Greek, you're going to find this Greek word, athetio, athetio, and it means rejects. 
rejects. It's ongoing. It's ongoing. And then we find this other Greek word, apothenesco. It means dies, i.e. about to die, ongoing. But the NIV and the New American Standard, they put this in the distant past. Rejected, died. They died back then because they rejected back then. No. You die today if you reject today. This is ongoing. So you've got to watch the NIV and the NAS because they've thrust this in the distant past, but that is not what this communicates. Anyone who rejects dies. How can that happen? Anyone who rejects Moshe's Torah dies without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you think he shall deserve who has trampled underfoot the son of Yahuwah and has counted the dam, the blood of the covenant by which he made Kadosh holy as a common thing and has insulted the Ruach of favor? You have to ask yourself the question, how does the son get trampled underfoot? Well, how does the sun get trampled underfoot? Wouldn't you want to know? I certainly do, in fearful trembling, want to know. If you kick out the Malkit Zedek altars, the Malkit Zedek altar, which was where? Outside the gate, the son of Yahuwah falls to the ground as you count the Malkitzedic Book of the Covenant, a common thing, trampling the son of Yahuwah underfoot. You choose Judaism dressed up as a lamb, complete with Levitical altars that can't hold up the sacrifice of the son, causing him to fall underfoot As you trample his blood. Listen. Listen. You have to ask yourself this question. All these messianic Hebrew roots. Torah, Torah, Torah. Do the Levitical altars uphold the sacrifice of Yahushua outside the gates? Do they allow the sacrifice of the high priest outside the gates? If they do, give me the chapter and give me the verse. They do not. The only altar outside the gates that upholds the Malkitzedic high priest is a Malkitzedic altar prior to the Levitical regime. But if you go back, as the author is communicating to his audience, if you go back to Judaism, or if you go back to the Levitical regime, you are going to kick the altars of Malkitzedic down, and the body will fall, and you trample his blood underfoot. You cannot play it both ways. That is religious hypocrisy that you learn in the church system. It's double talk. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, but we don't do the Torah. What? 
Yeshua's my high priest. But yes, we don't get rid of anything in the Levitical regime. What? It's the same double talk you learned in religion. We have to set the word above all doctrine and dogma and go with the word and the word alone. Truly. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30. For we know him that has said, vengeance belong to me. I will repay, says the master Yahuwah. And again, Yahuwah shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living Eloah. And this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. Vengeance is the sole prerogative of Yahuwah. And then we find Deuteronomy 32, verse 36. Yahuwah will judge his people. If you take the wrong action, you can expect what? Judgment. The living Eloa is aware if you commit the sin of apostasy in regards to the altar. And that's where we're at today. We are living in a parallel universe to our audience 2,000 years ago. Things are slightly different. There was the destruction of the temple that was about to occur. And we are living on in that very generation that is going about to see the reconstruction of a temple that is about to occur. So you're going to find yourself in the very same battle for the faith. And it's all going to be about temple, priesthood, and sacrifice. And it will be your very soul. That is why I'm so passionate about this message. That is why I'm so passionate about rightly dividing the word of Torah so that you don't make the perilous, perilous mistake of following after the Bolshevik New World Order that the Messianic and Hebrew roots have aligned themselves and sold out to. They've sold out to it just like Christian Zionism has. We'll get into this a little bit later. How do you know if you're in apostasy? Simple. Does the Levitical altar permit the sacrifice of Yahushua, the flesh from heaven, outside the gates on the Mount of Olives? I need you to show me the chapter and the verse in Torah that permits that to happen. There isn't one. So now you are left with a choice. And what choice you make will depend upon your very soul. And that's the seriousness of it. That's the seriousness of it. Now, the other question you'd have to ask yourself is, does the Malkitzedic altar system permit the sacrifice of the flesh from heaven outside the gates on the Mount of Olives? Equal weights and measures, you'd need to show me, Matthew, chapter and verse. Wouldn't you say, Brother John? If you're going to demand it one way, then you better show it the other way. Exodus chapter 20, verse 22. I have talked with you from heaven. Because we're talking about the flesh from heaven. An altar of earth you shall make for me where I record my name. Where? Where? I record my name. 
So this is under a Malkizedic administration. There isn't a Levitical priesthood. There is no infraction of the golden calf. This is all prior to anything Levitical. There is no book of the law at this point. Jeremiah 3 verse 17. And where does Yahuwah rest his name? And at the time they shall call Jerusalem the throne, the altar system, the very throne of Yahuwah. And all the nations shall be gathered unto it, the name of Yahuwah to Jerusalem. Ezekiel 11 verse 23. And the glory of Yahuwah went up from the midst of the city, Jerusalem, and it stood upon the mountain, which is where? The Mount of Olives, which is east outside the gates of the city. Hebrews chapter 10. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O Elohim. He taketh away the first sacrificial system, that he may establish the second sacrificial system. And Hebrews 13.10. We have an altar, wherefore they have no right to eat, which serveth the tabernacle. It is very pressing. By returning to the Levitical altars, they caused the sun to fall underfoot, thus yoking themselves with the generation of the unpardonable sin. The blasphemy of the Ruach HaKodesh, they yoked themselves with the generation that was making the claim that Yahushua was not the Moshiach on the basis of his being demon-possessed. That generation would face physical judgment. They would face death, as will this generation. Because like that generation, that there was 40 years in the wilderness, this was 40 years after the resurrection of Mashiach, and we find ourselves as the final generation, 40 years after the Iranian revolution, and we now find ourselves with a choice. Which altars will we choose? Based upon the altars you choose will be whether the sun is upheld or his body falls because you kicked the Malkizedic altars out because you went back to the Levitical regime that do not support the body of Mashiach and you trample his body and his blood underfoot. It's serious stuff. There's a judgment coming. There's a judgment coming for lawlessness the institutionalized church. And there's a judgment coming for the Levitical insurgents peddled by the messianic Hebrew roots that have aligned themselves with the New World Order conspirators with their judgmental, spiritless counsel. The judgment affects our nation and the battle The battle will be fought in our churches, it will be fought in our rotundas, and it will be fought in our stadiums. We are in grave times. We are in grave times. A basic credo of Marxist ideology is the promotion of revolution through agitation instigated by party 
malefactors planted in an opponent's political rally. The first country outside of Russia to experience Bolshevik revolution was Germany in 1918, almost 100 years ago. Just like today, as work and manpower losses mounted in Germany, the Bolshevik-dominated German Social Democratic Party began agitating. They began agitating the population and instigating public riots through loyalist party conspirators planted at national political venues. This is typical Marxism and Bolshevism. Typical Marxism and Bolshevism. The Bolshevik media then were eager to report these fabricated events as truth, further fermenting a mutinous movement like no other, like no other, and destabilizing the political and economic climate. This was in 1918. Why am I sharing all of this with you? Because there's a judgment coming. And that judgment is going to be within our churches, within our stadiums, and our political rotundas. And how you stand concerning upholding the sacrifice of Mashiach will be your very, very life. The Bolshevik, Rosa Luxemburg, and Karl Liebenknecht were instigators. The Bolsheviks, Rosa Luxemburg, and Karl Liebenknecht, they were instigators that were used and they used this particular method of agitation to lay the groundwork to seize political control and foment national revolution. What happened in North Carolina on Thursday? What happened in North Carolina on Thursday at the Trump rally? We've not seen, we've not seen such a desperate attempt by the New World Order to derail national political awakening since November the 22nd, 1963. They're desperate. We've not seen such desperate attempts by the New World Order to derail a political awakening since the assassination of Kennedy. You have to realize this is bigger than 9-11. This is bigger than Vietnam. This is the biggest thing Thursday in North Carolina since the assassination of JFK. If you can't grasp that, then brethren, you're not paying attention. You're not reading the scriptures and you're not reading the political climate and understanding that this is all fermented from the failed policy of 1980. 98 years ago, Bolsheviks did in Germany, is what Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton are literally pulling the pages out of Bolshevik Marxist revolution and doing it in America. They're doing it right here. And Karl Liebenknecht got executed for, they are doing right in front of you. They're using the whole media to do it and spin it. And this happened on Thursday and nothing, nothing is perilous. And so 
desperate has happened since the assassination of JFK. Agitators, agitators confess their presence at the Trump rally. They, they confess this as a social experiment. And an old white guy, 78 years old, cleans the clock of a black agitator. Hillary and Bernie, just like Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebenknecht, then use this event that they instigated through their race-baiting bootlickers as a platform for further Bolshevik-funded media to then hector the opponents that they go on then to vilify the event and place responsibility squarely on the political opponent's shoulders. And then you get all these New World Order stooges like MSNBC and Megan, is it Megan Kelly, the, the Fox News, then blaming, blaming Trump with all these Black Lives Matters. Black lives do matter, but no race is to be elevated or denigrated. No race above another. You see, what they do is they try to foment racial wars by using their Marxist Bolshevik propaganda. And that's what's happening. And if they can turn us against one another, then they can continue to do which is foment and instigate. And then you've got Hillary Clinton, then and, and Bernie Sanders and all CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, then just fermenting it further and further to national revolution. National revolution. This is quintessential. I'm telling you, this is quintessential Rosa Luxemburg torn from the pages of the Bolshevik Revolution 98 years ago. This is Hillary Rodham Clinton's Marxist political propaganda. It's the seeds of national revolution. Black lives matter, which they do, but no race should be elevated or denigrated. And if you cared about blacks then you would understand that the most damaging party to the African-American has been the Democratic Party that experimented on African-Americans. If you cared about African-Americans, then you would stop funding the inner-city abortions. More African-Americans are killed and targeted by the abortion clinics than whites. If you really cared about Black Lives Matter, and if you really cared about Black Lives Matter, you'd realize that more blacks have been taken from the Methodist Church and the Baptist Church in the 20th century and thrust into Islam. More good black lives that do matter have been pulled out of the Baptist Church and the Methodist Church and thrust into Islam. How? by the Liberal Democratic Party in America. So they don't care. And they are using people to race bait. Because if you can do that, and you can turn the people and ferment and agitate, then guess what? You control 
You control it. And this is exactly, if you study what they did in 1918, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebenknecht, if you study what they did and you listen to their speeches and then you listen to the reactions of Hillary Clinton, Fox News and Bernie Sanders, and you look at these plants that they put in, there was a communist flag that the Black Lives Matters people were flying. It's right there on the news. A communist flag, a Marxist Bolshevik flag. And this is happening right before us because they are terrified. They are terrified of you losing control. Losing control. Hebrews 10 verse 32. But remember the former days in which after you were immersed in mikvah, you endured great fights and sufferings. On one hand, you were made a gazing stock, exposed to reproaches and pressures. And on the other hand, you became sharers with those who were so treated. The author is saying, remember, remember your former courageous faith. We must never lose, never lose the zeal from the former days. Never lose the zeal for when you first came into the faith, when you were first believers, when we were first enlightened. Since they suffered as real believers, it showed them that they were in fact real believers. Our suffering shows us that we're real believers. The first deterrent to apostasy is to remember our earlier days in the faith. And then verse 33 points to two aspects of suffering. One is direct and another is indirect. Let's look at direct suffering. Number one, they suffered personally being made a gazing stocks. Interesting, the Greek word there is theatrizo, theatrizo, which is where we get our English word theater. Do you ever feel like you're in a sideshow and people are just like gazing at you? That's exactly what it's talking about. Do you know how many times, do you know how many times lukewarm believers that don't know what they believe have wanted to get me into debates with their pastors? Why? Because they want to make me a gazing stock so that they can see the debate because they don't know what they believe. And then they'll weigh the debate and make a decision based upon two men because they don't have the faith within them to be able to go into the word and pull out the truth. So they'd rather make you a gazing stock and then decide based upon your theatrics how you perform. This is exactly what they were doing. How many in your friends and family look at you like a gazing stock, like you're a theater? And they would love to put you before others and what? Watch the debate and see who wins so that they can mock you and ridicule you. This is exactly what they were doing. They will go to the opinions, the doctrine, and the dogma of men rather than the counsel of Elohim and try and prop you and I up as a gazing stock. This is exactly what they were doing with the first century faith. They were mocked, and then they suffered because of that mocking in two ways. One, they suffered reproaches, meaning ridicule and mockery. And two, they suffered afflictions, meaning persecution in relation 
to their possessions. They were robbed. You and I, we have been robbed. We've been robbed by the liberals financing their Marxist global cabal. Have we not? We've been robbed. I was robbed 850 bucks last year because I didn't want to sign up for Obamacare. I was robbed the year before because I didn't want to sign up for Obamacare. So they just put it on my taxes and robbed me. I didn't have a choice. They robbed me. This is totally outrageous. Totally outrageous because you don't want to sign up to their Marxist propaganda programs. So they just come in and rob you. And then when you stand up and start talking about it, you're made a gazing stock, a spectacle that people can just laugh at because they don't have it within them to rightly discern so they'll just want to watch you like a sideshow. That's exactly what we've seen. Exactly what I've experienced. Now let's look at indirect suffering. They suffered because of their associations with other believers. And like many people, they start following Torah to the tribes and they start suffering because they're associated with this ministry that divides and says, you know what, the book of the law and the book of the covenant are not synonymous. You're going against the status quo of Christianity. You're going against the accepted status quo of rabbinical Judaism. I mean, everybody accepts that the book of the covenant and the book of the law are the same thing. You're associating yourself with a ministry that says they're not synonymous. Well, that's outrageous. If they were the same thing, why would Yahweh call them two different things? And why would it be called out by name in Galatians 3.10 and so many other verses? Why? Why would there be an offering of total priesthood, Exodus 19 to 24, 11, And then all of a sudden we see the implementation of a Levitical regime after the golden calf breach. Why? If this is all synonymous, because you're either buying into the new world order and their religious manifestation of rabbinical Christian Zionism, or you're starting to question everything and you're going with the text. But you associate with that, then guess what? You're going to find yourself persecuted too. That is a indirect suffering because they were associating with other believers that were following the Malkitzedic priesthood. But we're supposed to become partakers together. Don't forsake our assembling together, our Shabbat gatherings together here or online. Don't forsake that. Verse 34, and you had pity on those who were prisoners and you allowed the seizure of your property cheerfully. For you yourselves know that you have better and a more enduring possession in heaven. Do not lose your confidence, verse 35, which has great reward. For you have need of patience that after you have done the will of Yahuwah, you will receive the promise. Now, verse 37 is a quote from Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 3, where Yahuwah will fulfill his promises in due time. That we're to hang on to hope during persecution. That the just, the just will live by faith. 
And we will see, we will see the new world order hanging from the lampposts. We will. We will. It will just take the implementation of the implementation of faith and overcoming the persecutions, whether they are direct or indirect. In yet a little while, he that shall come will come and will not tarry, but the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my being shall have no pleasure in him. Once you set your hand to the plow, you don't look back. You don't. I just keep on going. I don't care. I don't care anymore. I'm so beyond it at this point. I just, I don't give a rip. I mean, I don't. They can, they can think what they, they're just, I mean, people, they, they, they contact us and they, I mean, for instance, I'm sorry, I'm going to say it right online. People contact us and say, well, can you prove that's and that's such and such and such because this is such and such and such. And I just take the stance, no. How about you prove what you're saying? Because what you're saying is total theological opinion based upon no textual witness. But because it's the accepted opinion, you want me to prove something. First of all, show me the evidence in the Bible of what you're saying. Because theological opinion isn't textual evidence. And they got nothing, nothing. And then I come back with scripture, verse, language, history, archaeology. But you know what? You thrust that all up against millennia of dogma and doctrine. And if you don't have the faith in the word of Yahweh alone, you'll still go with the doctrine and dogma because a thousand people support it. And guess what? You'll be the lone One, the lone sheep that says, I'm going with the word. But guess what? Ever since I was 24, I've only ever had the word. I got saved. I have seen. I have seen Yahushua. I have seen him. I have seen him. And now his word is my blanket that I wrap myself in for comfort. That's my testimony. I got nothing else. And that's all I've ever had since I've come in the faith. So I don't care what your doctrine is. I don't care how many thousands of pastors or what Billy Graham says. Just show me the chapter and show me the verse. And that scares people. That's radical, apparently. To me, it just makes common sense. It just makes common sense. Because I know what saved me. The living word. And that is the only thing I trust. And I know who jacked me. It was pastors, rabbis, and the new world order. (laughs) So I don't go for that opinion. You see? And I think many of you would agree. Right? Verse 39, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the being. We find ourselves, we truly do. I mean, I'm so excited, but I'm terrified too. We find ourselves in a parallel universe, the parallel universe of our very audience. 
What would our audience do with their faith in Yahusha? Should the Levitical regime suddenly end? What would they do? That's what the audience is saying. What will you do with your faith? Should the temple be destroyed and the Levitical regime fall away? What will you do with your faith? Would they really be able to recognize Yahushua's sacrifice as the final sacrifice for sins? Would they? Well, our perspective today, yeah, it's slightly different, but it's the same. What? What will we do should animal sacrifices be reinstituted and restored by the new world order upon the fake temple mount? What will you do with your faith? What will you do with your faith if they resurrect the Levitical hierarchy? What will you do with your faith? What will you do with Yahushua as your high priest? What will you do then? Will we be deluded into thinking it's part of some divine plan? Or will we have the wherewithal to see the deception that's been in the planning stages for millennia? What will we do with our priesthood position? What altar will we choose? What priesthood will we choose? And what high priest will we officiate under? Will we be able to recognize that Yahushua's sacrifice is the final sacrifice for sins and that we have an altar outside of the gate, which they that officiate at the New World Order altar, they have no right to eat of? You see, the Messianic movement has aligned itself with the New World Order Bolsheviks because they consider declaring the restoration, listen, because they consider declaring the restoration of sacrifices on the Temple Mount to be an abomination as actually speaking against the sovereign plan of Yahuwah as laid out in prophecy. Well, Matthew, by you saying that the restoration of the sacrifices on the Temple Mount is an abomination, you're speaking against the sovereign plan of Yahweh. That's what they say. They've been grabbed by the New World Order. They've bought into it, just like Christian Zionism. There's four main problems with this view. Number one. The Messianic movement believes the state of Israel is an answer to prophecy and part of the sovereign plan of Yahuwah when it's not. It's a man-made invention of the Bolshevik Theodore Herzl and his communist Marxist minions in the 19th century. There are no 12 tribes in the land, and Judah does not have the right to the name Israel. Joseph does. Read your Bibles. Judah is not the remnant. Read your Bibles. So, the one that has the right to the name Israel is Joseph. Number two, the Temple Mount isn't the Temple Mount. It's the Anatonia Fortress. The Temple Mount is actually south in the city of David. So what they'll be constructing isn't even in the right place. Number three, the book of Ezekiel 
isn't future prophecy, but it is a past conditional promise that was rejected by Israel and never realized with no future application. And number four, the covenant with the Levites in Jeremiah 33 was again a conditional covenant which they broke so there is no present or future application with a restored Levitical priesthood. It's a broken covenant. Those four things clearly show you that the Messianic and the Hebrew roots have aligned themselves with the Marxist Bolsheviks and will come into the judgment of Thessalonians when the anti-Mashiach, Mashiach Neged, goes up on the Temple Mount. They'll go trundling along with the rabbinic Bolshevik Khazars and get all caught up in the Levitical hierarchy and the blood of animals. And you know what? Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders will be there clapping and applauding right along with them all. It is a revolution. And it is coming to our churches, our rotundas, and our stadiums. And unless you and I continue in the race, you will be left behind. Oh, yes. You'll be left behind to the soup and service of the FEMA camps. And if you don't think I'm serious, then just go back and rediscover what Rosa Luxemburg was doing in 1918 in Germany, and then look at what happened at the Trump rally this week and how the media is doing the very same thing as the Bolshevik media was doing 98 years ago. It is typical Marxist propaganda. And why are they flying communist flags at these events? And if you really care about blacks and African Americans, then you need to address why the Democrats have done more to disservice the African American community, target African Americans through abortion, and have Islam target African American churches in the 20th century more than any other racial group. And we have seen more African Americans be pulled out of the Baptist and Methodist church and go into Islam than any other race. And if you really want to talk about slavery, then you have to understand that Islam were the ones that enslaved the Africans from Africa and then sold them to the British and the Portuguese who were at the docks. But if it wasn't for Islam, you would never have caught the Africans and the blacks to bring to the shipmasters. So the very ones that enslaved you, you're now going to go and follow their religion. This is insanity. But this is what's peddled by the Bolshevik Marxists because this is exactly what Rosa Luxemburg did. Ferment racial troubles. Ferment that and you cause a revolution. But if we realize that we are Joseph's coat, that there is neither slave or free, and that we are all, no race is to be elevated or denigrated above another, that Joseph's tribal coat come together as one, then we will come and we will fight 
the Bolsheviks and the Marxists as one united people. Because it's not about color. It's about priesthood. But if they can bring it down to that base level. But you'll see there's been many, many African Americans that support and go to the Trump rallies. But they don't show that. Because that is not how their media works. We do find ourselves in a parallel universe to the audience of the book of Hebrews. And it's all about altar, priesthood, and sacrifice. But it has been hijacked by the Marxists. And that is why we need to be aware of the fermentation of revolution in this country. Because it will bring about the judgment. Amen? Questions, comments, none at all. Lovely. Nothing, Brother Steve, huh? Huh? Oh, you banned some people? Oh. Why? Can you... You don't want to tell us? All right, talk to me afterwards. I'll let you know next week. There was another protest today, was there? You see, and what this is, is this is an infringement of free speech. So what you find is that people are, are not allowing free speech. And who is it that are not, is not allowing free speech? The Democrats and the liberals that have been hijacked by the Bolsheviks. They don't want the free speech. So what they're going to do is incite racial division, which is so base, because then that keeps the people fighting amongst themselves. Because if we unite together, then guess what? They've got problems. So they cannot have us unite together. But we have to. We have to unite together. Yes. Oh, okay. Peter says we're priests. Yes. But early on today, your definition of priest simply meant a change of the way we have access to the Father. But I think there's some confusion where people are equating that we are now a priesthood and they're relating that to a priest similar to a priest under the Levitical system. So I guess the question is, what's your definition or what what would a priest in the Melchizedek priesthood look like? Okay, yes. Great question. Great question. So we are a kingdom of priests because that was the initial offer, the perfect will offer in Exodus 19 to the nation, that they were a, would become a royal kingdom of priests. Then we find with the inauguration of the new covenant, we are now a kingdom of priests. So that is all about access and authority And I believe that is the remnant in these last days. It's a calling. It's an elevation of authority so that you will have the witness, the testimony to speak into the lives of those that are in the court of the Gentiles. They're lawless. Or they have then decided to go up into the Levitical regime. You will have the authority and the power of the indwelling to have full access to the high priest with your petitions. It will put you in a protection, a physical protection and a spiritual authority, I believe. 
of access, yes. It's, yeah, hang on a sec. In that nation of, uh, or kingdom, in, uh, kingdom of priests, it was actually a, a statement of a government, as the scripture says, the government shall be upon his shoulders. Correct. It's a government without end. And so the Torah was exactly the laws and conduct of that kingdom. And so when people disavow that, then they are not able to walk in that kingdom. They don't have the access. They don't have the ability to walk within its rulings, with its government or its authority. It's just like um, being in the priesthood is akin to back in Shemo Exodus 21, when you decided because you were uh, indebted to sin, let's use that analogy, that you came into the master's house and you sold yourself as a bond servant. Are we not bond servants? If you're in the priesthood, the priesthood places you in a bond servant position. So now you're under the government of the house master. Therefore, if you go out and something happens to you, you don't have to fight your battles. You go back and report to your master and he goes out and he cleans the house because somebody offended his servant his property. So we are in an authority position because we're under his house. We get to eat at his table, which are the feasts and the Shabbats. We get to eat what he eats, which is clean and proper foods. It's food. And we also get to be a partaker of every benefit that he has because we choose to stay within his priesthood. That's Exodus 21. We're bond servants. I think that's a good analogy. Yeah. Abba Yahweh, we thank you so much, Abba. Let us have clarity, Abba, as these days fast approach, Abba, that we can truly discern what is true and what is not. Abba, we thank you so much for the power of your word, for the hope of resurrection and transfiguration. And Abba, we thank you so much, Abba, that you have shown us that we are a tribe, that Abba Yahweh, that we truly are Joseph's coat, that Abba, it's not about the color of our skin, Abba, but it is about the color of your blood that sanctifies and washes us all clean. The Abba, that we are to graft into Israel and we become one. No matter what our ethnicity, we become the whole house of Israel. We thank you, Abba, that you truly have given us Yahusha, Abba, that bled for us, that Abba, there is no racial boundaries anymore, Abba, but there is the one house of Israel. Amen? Amen. Amen.